disrupt yourself. How will you disrupt yourself? How will you disrupt yourself? On today's show. And then I realized, wow, you know, entrepreneurship is about creating value in the market. And colleges can't really keep up with where technology is taking us. And so the credentials, quite frankly, mean less and less in a world where it is about, as you said, what are you creating? Welcome to the Disrupt Yourself podcast, where we discuss strategies and advice for how to climb the S-curve of learning in your professional and personal life. Disrupting who you are now to slingshot into who you want to be. I'm your host, Whitney Johnson, and today our guest is Marcus Whitney. And what a story he has to tell. At age 20, Marcus was a college dropout. He had a one-year-old child and another on the way. He was living in a week-to-week efficiency hotel. But over time, he taught himself software development and became the head of technology for and a partner in the firm Emma Email Marketing. Today, Marcus is co-founder of Jumpstart Foundry, one of the most active healthcare VC firms in the U.S. He's the CEO of HealthFurther, a healthcare strategic advisory firm, and co-founder and part owner of the Nashville Soccer Club, Nashville, Tennessee's major league soccer team. He hosts the Marcus Whitney's Audio Universe and a YouTube channel, Marcus Whitney's Video Universe both of which focus on how he's dealt with depression, decades of unaddressed trauma, and how quitting drinking and starting the practice of meditation have turned his life around. Basically, he talks about how he's disrupted himself over and over and over again. Finally, Marcus is the author of the Amazon bestseller, Create and Orchestrate, the path to claiming your creative power from an unlikely entrepreneur. Marcus, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Whitney, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. You've recently written a book titled Create and Orchestrate. Will you tell us how you decided that you not wanted, but needed to write this book? Five years ago, I started the process of looking up uh, as as you would. Um, When you're climbing a mountain, you spend a lot of time looking down and making sure you don't slip. Uh, The terrain is always changing and you need to make sure your footing is solid. And so I was really, really focused on uh, climbing the mountain away from poverty where I was when I dropped out of college and had a one year old and another child on the way and was waiting tables six and a half days a week uh, to financial security, quite frankly, and being able to take care of my boys. And so I was just focused on getting away from that situation that I found myself in. And 15 years later, I looked up and I realized, wow, um, I've been able to learn entrepreneurship without even really thinking about doing it. Uh, I learned software development and and taught myself uh, how to be a coder. And way before the the revelation of coding as a a path to economic uh, mobility was fashionable. Um, I started to find myself on really influential boards in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, my, my circles of influence really changing a lot. And I also noticed that I was the only black person in my age group who was in a lot of the circles that I was in. 
specifically leadership and technology, venture capital, professional sports, things of that nature. So I realized that what I had experienced over the previous 15 years would be valuable if I could really codify it, wrap my own narrative into a good book and get it out into the world. And so that was the beginning of a five-year journey of writing, create, and orchestrate. Did you enjoy writing the book? Was it a fun process for you? Um, the end of writing the book was fun. <laughs> you mean when it was finished or you mean towards basically, the end? <laughs> basically when it was finished. <laughs> uh, this is the hardest thing I've ever done for several reasons. One, Whitney, you know, writing a book the first time is pretty difficult because you're not really an author when you start. <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. You are when you finish. And the process of learning how to write a book was very, very difficult. I had written blog posts and you know, lots of emails and memos and notes and things like that, online articles. But a book, something substantial, 50,000 plus words, uh, you know, 250 plus pages with structure that actually will engage people the entire time and is not just one of these business books that is 250 pages, but could have been 25, <laughs> mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. is really, really difficult. And then I think it was a revealing process for me because as I started to write the book, I realized, uh, A, I wasn't quite done learning everything I needed in order to write the good book. So mm. that was part of the five-year journey. Part of it was that I needed to be more honest with myself. And the easiest way to do that is being more honest with the reader. So um, it was hard to get to the point where I got comfortable talking about a lot of my own failures because th that's where most of my really important lessons came from, not the successes that I had. So that was very difficult. It was a hard process. You think about your life or anybody thinks about their life and the things that are almost always the best stories, almost always our superpowers, almost always come from some type of failure. And when there's failure, there's some type of shame. You'll have these great stories and people probably were saying to you as you're writing the book, you should tell that story. And you're like, I don't want to tell that story. And then it always <laughs> comes, it's the shame. It's always the shame. And that's where the gold is, right? And so I'm just curious, is there one story in the book that you were like, I don't want to tell that story. And all of your friends and your family were saying, you have to tell that story. Was there one of those stories that you can recall that 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 fits that category? So I was not um, very open with the book while I was writing it. But my wife, uh, who we got married right around the time when I committed to doing the book, uh, she really had to be there for the entire struggle. And so mm. one of the stories was, was one that she lived through with me that was entirely shameful, which was the way I sort of carried myself around an award ceremony um, <laughs> for mm. a technology award. And it was, it was early in my career as an entrepreneur. I didn't really understand priorities or the press or how to stay focused and, um, I got really upside down about not winning an award. I was embarrassed that I didn't win the award, but far more embarrassed looking at my behavior uh, years oh. later, looking at the way that I carried myself. And I just was not a good loser. And yeah. it also was a very poor sense of prioritization for myself as a leader of a company um, to, to be valuing 
this this award in the way that I did. And so we were at this award ceremony and surprise, surprise, I'd had too much to drink that night. And uh, and the the president of the Technology Council was a friend of mine. And I was like, you know, I, I wasn't like yelling at him, but I was kind of yelling at him, um, <laughs> you know, because I didn't win the award. And, and you know, I had to like be put it into a cab that night. <laughs> it's just, you know, it was just kind of bad. Uh, and I wrote about it, you know, because that experience, not right away, but over the course of years, really helped me to frame my uh, much healthier relationship mm. with the press and with awards and understanding how to engage with with that entire phenomena uh because it's a it's a really weird thing that you don't get a ton of guidance on uh, when you're early in your uh, business leadership career that's so valuable and it's just so hard isn't it marcus you know i think about our very first accelerant of personal disruption it's take the right risk take on market versus competitive risk which is this idea of create versus compete and People are like, well, but you have to compete. And I'm like, no, what I mean when I say compete, because I'm not saying you're not going to try to be competitive, but it's it's when you want to win just to win versus what are you going to create? What are you going to build? And it is so hard. I, I find that in our company, and it sounds like you do this as well, is that we're constantly having to say, create, don't compete, create, don't compete, because that siren song of competing and wanting to be better and wanting to, you know, be higher in the rankings. Um, it's just, it's tough. It is tough. So I am so glad that you were willing to share that. And you also had a little bit of a midwife in your wife who helped <laughs> to birth, to help birth that story. Isn't that how you came into business as a professional web developer is you did a swap, right? With a midwife. That's right. That's right. The very first gig that I got as a self-taught web developer was bartering a shiny new flash technology-based website with a midwife in exchange for uh, her services with the birth of my second son. And I love that site. Even today, when I think back on, on that work, <laughs> it was a fair deal. I'll, I'll just yeah. say that. It was a fair deal. I worked really, really hard on that site. Um, you know, it ended up being a portfolio piece for my very first job that I got uh, as a professional developer. I love the symbolism. It was the birth of your son and the birth of your career. That's right. That's right. So in your book, you talk about eight core concepts. Um, will you talk us through them at a high level? And then you mentioned, I think you can correct me if I'm misremembering that marketing is your favorite. So talk us through at a high level, the concepts and why marketing is your favorite. Sure. Um, if I can just maybe step back a little bit and just give a little reason why I even created these core concepts. So, oh, yes, please. Uh, I'm a college dropout who over time has learned that I learn by doing. And I then learn by accumulating uh, new knowledge by wrapping it in the context of what I already understand. So I'm, I'm really like a generalist. But I, I use one thing and parlay it into learning the next thing. And so software development being sort of the first part of my career was really, really instrumental in the way that I looked at everything that came after it. And business was no different. So as somebody who never went to business school, um, didn't really understand accounting, didn't really understand operations or any of those types of really important business things. Uh, I was learning consistently by making mistakes <laughs> and and every time I would make a mistake, I would sort of like jot it down and and then try to like organize it. Say, where does this fit in the overall structure of a business? How do I make sense of this wild organism that is this business I'm trying to run? 
And ultimately what I came up with is something that is very commonly used in the world of software development, which is a framework. Software developers use frameworks when the very same things are necessary every single time and you don't want to rewrite them. Uh, you know, something that, that if you've been in the software development industry, kind of a joke is that programmers are lazy. And that's good because they never want to write the same code twice. So they'll write one piece of code that they can use over and over and over again. And my goal with the eight core concepts was to come up with a framework that would capture the most essential things in every single business. It needed to actually work for 100% of businesses, regardless of industry, regardless of really, I would say even jurisdiction or anything like that. Um, what are the essential things? And then what is the context of those essential things? Meaning how do they relate to each other? What's the most important? What's the least important? And how do they flow? So that was that was how I came up with the, the eight core concepts really over you know 20 years. So it's through the lens of a software developer, right? It is. The, the eight core concepts have, uh, have two high-level contexts. There are four in each context. One is inside of the building, one is outside of the building. When I say inside the building, I basically mean you and your team. Outside of the building, I mean the market and your customers. And they flow in, in an order of priority. And they also use something in computer science called inheritance. I'll explain that at the end. So starting at the top, inside the building, starts with leadership, then it moves to finance, then it moves to operations, and then it moves to a concept I called growth. We could talk quite a bit about growth. I think disrupt yourself has a lot to do with growth. And then the outside of the uh, building concepts start with product. So now we're at the fifth concept, product, then goes to service, then goes to sales, and then goes to marketing. So in that list of eight concepts, the most important one is leadership. The least important one is marketing. But the trick to me saying most important and least important is that as you go down the list, the next uh, concept inherits everything from the previous one. So leadership is embedded in everything. So leadership is in finance. And then inside of operations, you have both leadership and finance all the way down to marketing. So while marketing is the least important, it is the most comprehensive. Marketing has to contain every single aspect of the business in the way that it operates and, and that it engages with the market to generate demand for your business. It is just a really relatively simple way to understand all of the core concepts of business and to also look at yourself and, and say, listen, you don't have to be great at all of these concepts, but you do have to understand them well mm -hmm. enough to run the business because you can never really delegate leadership. And even if you hire someone in any of these other concept areas, you have to be able to ultimately hold them accountable for the work. And if you don't understand it at the highest level, then you can't really do that. So when I started, for example, as an entrepreneur uh, off of uh, a really successful career as a technology leader, I thought I was ready. I was very close to the co-CEOs of Emma at the time, Clint Smith and Will Weaver. And I was like, I, you know, I know how to do this. And as soon as I got out on my own, what I realized was I knew technology. So I knew aspects of operations. Mm -hmm. um, I knew sales. I knew customer service. So I knew, I knew service and I knew I knew product. Um, I didn't really know marketing. And the biggest areas that I had issues in were uh, finance and and broader operations, really around sort of HR, legal, um, you know, compliance and things of that nature. And those were the fundamental things, you know, finance and operations. Those were the fundamental things that kept 
kept killing me, <laughs> you know, mm. in, in the first several mm. years of business, kept really, really messing me up. And so I realized I had to get a, a layman's degree in those things and learn how taxes worked, how creating business models worked, how creating financial models worked, how what were the most important reports that I needed to understand every single month uh, from a finance perspective? What was a P&L? Um, payroll taxes, all of those kinds of things that you just you have to know in order to run a business. So first of all, this is so elegant. I mean, that is the only word that comes to my mind is just the elegance and the simplicity and the order of this is just beautiful. And I love this idea of marketing being the baby. <laughs> like leadership is the the granddaddy and marketing is like three or four generations descended. But it's just so elegant. One of the things that you um, said in your book that I found fascinating is that the universal language in the world is not English or Chinese, but business. And then you said you don't need credentials or anyone's approval to speak it. And a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people, and I know a lot of my life, I've had total credential and because I have a music degree. I don't have a graduate degree. I don't have a technology degree. And you say people get hung up on having the right credentials or background to succeed. Can you just talk people through, um, number one, how you learned to become a programmer, because you're completely self-taught. I mean, you started when you were young, but you're self-taught. And then for people who are thinking, well, I have to have the credentials, but they don't really, as you're now a venture capitalist and you're vetting investments, how do you figure out, okay, yeah, you know, I'm going to take a bet on this person. It's completely non-traditional background, but I'm taking a bet. How, what metrics do you use? Because you can't use a college degree as a proxy to decide you're going to make a bet on someone. There's a lot of questions there, but I'll let you start wherever you want. Yeah. So software development uh, worked for me because I started in the year 2000. It was the dot-com boom. It was all over the news. And I, as a college dropout, was seeing on TV, because um, keep in mind, iPhone hadn't happened yet. A iPhone was seven years away. So I was watching mm -hmm. TV mm -hmm. and I was seeing high schoolers riding around in skateboards making, you know, 80 to $100,000 mm -hmm. programming websites. And so that was the that was the hack for me. I was just like, if they can do it, then I can do it. And so I just went about the process of learning. I also had my back against the wall. I mean, you know, it needs to be said that I was living in a week to week motel and waiting tables six and a half days a week with a one year old and another child on the way. So I had to do something. You know, I, I did not have the leeway or the slack in my life to let a whole lot of doubt manifest. I just had to kind of figure out what was going to work, what was the best option I had, and then get to work at that. Generally speaking, having your back against the wall is helpful for removing a lot of the extraneous narratives that aren't helpful in wherever you're trying to go. Having said that, I had that experience. It was successful. I did get the first job and, um, and then got another job and then got another job and was making more and more money. And so that experience really showed me that Credentials didn't matter as much as efficacy. And then the, the third job that I got was at a startup. And that was where I learned about value creation. Um, it was where I really learned about innovation and value creation. You know, 2003, email marketing was a big deal. Again, the iPhone was four years away from that point, right? And so <laughs> um, Facebook wasn't a thing. It's so crazy to think about that, right? But 
but Facebook wasn't a thing. And so the digital advertising space was completely banner ads, right? You know, mm -hmm. so, so the idea that you could market through email was a relatively new idea. And these two gentlemen that I happened to meet uh, and hired me as the fifth employee at their company were early on in that wave and created a unique product with a unique value proposition. And I've watched them grow their idea into a multi-million dollar business that, you know, when I left had hired 50 people, but went on to hire hundreds and be acquired by campaign monitor and, you know, just do really, really well. And, and that had nothing to do with their credentials. They both happened to graduate from, from college, but I knew them. And it was really clear to me that while they probably got good skills in uh, writing, that that wasn't the core of what they were utilizing. It, they were mm. learning every day. You know, it was their ability to learn every day and to experiment and try and their bravery that grew that company. And so I had that experience. And then I realized, wow, you know, entrepreneurship is about creating value in the market and colleges can't really keep up with where technology is taking us. And so the credentials, quite frankly, mean less and less in a world where it is about, as you said, what are you creating? There are angles where they give you core skill sets to create. So you think about engineering and, you know, most of the sciences are really helpful for that, but the rest of it, you kind of can learn on your own. You know, mm -hmm. I think we're now at this point, especially given, given the pandemic and a lot of the challenges around education and campuses and Google coming out with career certificates, where we're finally having the honest conversation that says, look, in the last 20 years, because of the internet, uh, the world has radically changed, radically. Yeah. We're still all holding on to the previous century's narrative. And uh, as somebody who has experienced unbelievable uh, economic mobility from where I was 20 years ago to where I am today, um, I just thought it was, it was my responsibility to share my story and share that this is a this is a universal truth this is not a marcus whitney is special thing this is a i leaned into this path and part of why it worked for me is because so few people were doing it more people should be doing it yeah and something you said that i loved is entrepreneurship is replacing education as the great equalizer education's going the other way the cost for value, the ROI equation is so poor right now that it's not an equalizer. It's burying people financially. The college degree is a really tough futures investment. It's not really an equalizer. Fascinating to think of it in that context. And they are just overdue for looking in the mirror and reinventing. The story that you told in the book about when you were a little kid, you had that IBM computer so that when mm. you came to teaching yourself, you weren't coming to it completely cold. Can you just tell that story briefly? My uncle, my mother's oldest brother, was a programmer in upstate New York at IBM. And IBM was computing back then, right? Mm -hmm. um, Microsoft Windows wasn't really a thing back uh, when I was a young person. And... um he gave me an IBM PC Junior, which, you know, like all the computers back then, ran on floppy disks and had very, very little power, very little memory. And so back then, it, you know, ran programs like Oregon Trail across like five floppy disks. So if you wanted the computer to do something, you had to learn how to program it in a language called BASIC. You had to learn some basic programming. 
So nine, 10 years old, it was one of my pastimes. If I wasn't playing little league baseball or hanging out with my friends, watching baseball or, or wrestling or something, I was in my basement programming on my IBM PC junior, very, very basic stuff, nothing crazy. But what's interesting is just as learning a language, a spoken language when you're young, uh, is more likely to stick just the way that we learn at that age. When I learned the basics of programming at nine and 10 years old, when I went to reapproach it uh, in my early 20s, I was able to recall the, the basic understanding of it. And I know that there was incredible value created when I was nine and 10, because I've talked to other people who are trying to learn programming from scratch. And yeah. some of the basics are very, very hard for them to understand. I was very, very fortunate in that way to have had an uncle who was a programmer. And so I understood that it was possible for me to be that professionally and also gave me the computer to be able to learn. I bet that's been a fun conversation to have with your uncle to to thank him uh, for that that gift that he gave you. And he probably didn't think much about it. And yet it's been so, um, so formative for you getting that one gift from your uncle as a child. You know, the other thing I'm thinking about as you're saying that is as adults, for us to really look at things that we did like to do as children that were fun for us, that were entertaining, because in those things that we enjoyed, there's likely some aptitude, some the seeds of something that we could be doing now. And I think it's a great place for us to look at our strengths and, and you know, kind of uncover, well, what did I like to do when I was nine or eight? And, and those things that we were good at, are we using them? Are we bringing them to bear on whatever it is we're doing as adults. It is. And and we lose connection with that part of ourselves when we become adults. You know, the world gets so serious and we have all these <laughs> really hard things to deal with. And and we forget that we used to be kids, yeah. you know, and we used to just have fun. And all of us used to create in some way, shape or form, even if, even if it was our own little world with our toys. I love that you are so uh, anchored in the importance of creation and obviously the title of my book that's about entrepreneurship, but it's called Create and Orchestrate. It's not called How to Buy a Franchise, right? You know what I mean? Like um, <laughs> creating is is a fundamental human capability. It's fundamental. Everything that we use and everything that we see that was not produced by nature, a human created it. That's a lot of stuff. So we, we are fundamentally creative beings and so many of us don't tap into that and don't claim that part of ourselves, right? Especially when we work in um, arts like finance or operations or law or, you know, things like that. We, we don't see the creativity in those things. And I, I always want to encourage people to see how they are creating in those things that they're doing. Yeah. So we're talking about fun and now we're going to talk about depression for just a minute. I, I think it's just so, I know, what a great segue. Um, but you've talked a little bit about that and, and unaddressed trauma and it's difficult for everyone, but I think it's especially difficult for men. And I thought because you were willing to talk about it, I would love for you just to share briefly how did you decide to get into therapy and was there a tipping point? So that if there's anybody who's listening and thinking, I can't do this, it's too hard, it's too uncomfortable, that maybe something that you share will help them do that work that they've been feeling they need to do but weren't quite ready to do. 
I'm always open to talk about trauma, depression. And and I I will say I generally have not uh, suffered from a real strong clinical depression, but I drank a lot and drinking definitely uh, exacerbates depression. It is a depressive agent. You know, for me, it was I hit my own form of a bottom. You know, there wasn't a particular uh, big blow up kind of thing. My son enlisted in the Marines and he went off to boot camp. And the next day I stopped drinking. For me, it was a buildup of feeling pretty out of control um, mm. and not just like, uh, you know, in, in my behavior, but more in terms of my life and the way that I saw myself in my life. Um, and I just knew that I couldn't continue the way that I was going. I also was in my forties and starting to feel the the health effects of, uh, of drinking a lot more. I wanted to be healthy for a much longer period of time and started to just connect the dots that I wasn't doing myself any favors by, you know, drinking regularly. I just had had enough. And I think Mm. that that's where most people get when they decide uh, that they are going to make a serious change. I started therapy and, uh, and I stopped drinking. And I think what had happened in the first session, I went in and I said all the things, like the things I had never said to anybody else. And her response normalized what I said. Mm. And that was huge, right? Because mm. when I said all those things, I was saying all the shameful things mm. that you know, I, I don't want to say everybody has, but I assume most people do. Oh, we all do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I went course. in and I said, all I said all the shameful things and mm-hmm. she did not respond like, oh my God, you are, oof, we got a lot of work to do. You know, it was much more like, okay, cool. Got it. <laughs> you know? And, and I think in that instant, I realized, oh, I am not a lost cause. I'm not mm-hmm. inherently bad. And she started to educate me about trauma and how trauma shows up in the way that we show up in the world when it's unaddressed. And it took me about 30 days to realize that my drinking was a coping mechanism for my inability to deal with uh, unresolved trauma. And that if I was going to be in therapy, I really didn't need to drink. So I stopped. Yeah. I just want to say a couple of things. Trauma comes in lots and lots of different varieties and packages. And so most people have some sort of unresolved trauma. And I think that's, you know, important for us to all acknowledge. And then I love how you described, it sounds like, you know, they talk about one of the keys to our healing is just to have someone bear witness to our loss. And what that therapist gave you in that moment is that she bore witness to your loss and allowed you to begin the healing process. It's really really beautiful. I think you nailed it. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, it is really important and I didn't understand this, but it is really important to understand that most people, um, especially in childhood have experienced some, some form of trauma, um, and often have not resolved it. It shows up in some type of dysfunctional behavior that yeah. 
you probably don't love about yourself, <laughs> you know, um, no, we don't, <laughs> you know, and you don't love it because you know, it's not you, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but, it, but you're kind of stuck with it. Therapy can help you to process these traumas and help you to let these things go. And, and then you can, you can actually be free. That's what growing up is, right? Growing up is finally becoming ourself, I think. In your TED Talk, you say something really interesting um, that sometimes you have to lie. And I love this because it's embedded within the word believe. Sometimes you have to lie to yourself in order to believe something is true about yourself. And I thought it was interesting because you had talked about this idea of talking about it from a programming standpoint, but it sounds like you had to also do it as a writer. What I tried to articulate through the whole, sometimes you have to lie a little bit, um, is that when I started my journey towards becoming a, a software developer, I at a certain point, I just started saying I am a software developer. I was doing it every day. I wasn't getting paid for it. I wasn't very good, but I didn't qualify it. I didn't say I was a uh, employed software developer or I was a good self- software developer. <laughs> I just said, I'm a software developer. And the more that I said that to myself, and the reason why I say it's a lie is because other people would qualify it, right? Mm. And so other people would say, you're a software developer, but you're waiting tables. No, buddy, you're a waiter. I'm a software developer. And that's what I, that's what I told myself all the time, all the time. And what happened over time was the environment I found myself in every day, which was the restaurant, and the kitchen and tables that I was serving made less and less sense. And it really started to increase the intensity with which I was studying and applying for jobs and going to user group meetings and staying up late practicing um, because my environment was not matching what I was telling myself every day, which was I'm a software developer. I wasn't even negating the being a waiter. It was more affirming what I am. Did you do that with your book? I am a writer. I did. I did, but it was hard. It, it, it was hard because I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, Whitney, um, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that. You're the first person to ever ask me this and I hadn't thought about it before. So this is a fantastic question. I did, but I then started to qualify it huh. when I said, I am an author and my first book will be a really good book. Mm. Um, and that was where things got difficult. I just was not willing for my first book to not be really good. And that made the journey that much more difficult. But I'm glad that I did that um, and that I didn't quit because there were times where with with that qualifier, it just it felt like I wasn't going to get there. Honestly, did you write a good book? I wrote a really good book. Yes, that was the right answer. By the way, everybody, Marcus is making five copies available, um, signed copies available to you all. If you want to be eligible for one of these copies, write a podcast review, send it to us at wj at whitneyjohnson.com and tell us what you learned from this episode with Marcus and you will be eligible for a copy. So thank you, Marcus. I wanted people to know where they can buy the book. I'm selling signed copies. If you don't happen to get one of the five uh, that we'll be giving away, I am selling signed copies at my own Shopify store, uh, Mm. which is creativepower.co. As you were getting ready to launch this, you wrote something on LinkedIn that I thought was very powerful. 
read us an excerpt from this letter um, that you shared. I hadn't read this post in a long time, so uh, so this is kind of fun. Um, all right, here we go. No, our inequity cannot be solved through economics alone. Certainly, there are matters of justice, policy, and more that must be resolved. But America's inequity issues cannot end without addressing the underlying economic problems either. The systems that perpetuate the wealth gap anchored in slavery are core to the inequity in America. Economic disparities are not isolated to black people, but black people in America feel them the most. And because I'm black, I understand these disparities deeply. They connect to everything, the quality of the food we eat, the healthcare we receive, the influence in politics we have, and more are all in some part connected to the wealth gap. Over the last 20 years, I've gone on a journey that has given me many valuable experiences and lessons about economics. I've distilled what I've learned down to the path of, in quotes, ownership through entrepreneurship. And I love that you also said, being an entrepreneur is living from a position of power. Create and orchestrate. Everyone, go read his book. Um, so inspiring. Thank you again for being here, Marcus. Thank you so much, Whitney. I love his story. A young boy receives the gift of a computer. It makes me think about the childlike wonder that would eventually send Marcus up his steep and exciting learning curve journey. Programmer, designer, digital marketer, entrepreneur, and now author. Children with their wonderful imaginations are constantly looking to expand the parameters of what's possible. As we enter the holiday season, I wonder about the gifts we will give, gifts that may spark the imagination of yet another generation. Also, Marcus touched on something that I think we all need to hear. Sometimes success can camouflage unaddressed trauma. Too often we ignore what's happening under the surface. We wrongly believe our achievements mean that the past doesn't matter anymore. But unaddressed trauma will show up, as Marcus said, most often taking the form of some dysfunctional behavior, something that we do that we, we really don't like about ourselves. Fortunately, he recognized this and sought help. With the support of a therapist, he bravely explored the pain behind the behavior. He found healing in the telling, something I suspect most of us can identify with. Finally, I love Marcus's take on education, the importance of looking at the ROI of our educational dollars. The world is changing at a breakneck pace. If your career is technology, for example, a traditional four-year degree may not be the best option. Other paths may make more sense. Spoken like a true disruptor. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to be eligible for a copy of Marcus's book, Create and Orchestrate, go on to Instagram and follow me at Johnson Whitney. Then in the post for this podcast, tell us what you enjoyed about this episode and you will be eligible for one of five signed copies. Thank you again to Marcus Whitney for sharing his time with us. And thank you to our team, Jennifer Brotherson, Sarah Duran, Whitney Job, Steve Ludwig, Melissa Ruddy, and Nancy Wilson. I'm Whitney Johnson, and this is Disrupt Yourself. <laughs>